Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 22, The Currency of Fools, where we will be looking at chapters 46 through 48 of The Name of the Wind, through the lens of recklessness. As a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time at the end to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week and then expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, Pat, if you're listening, we're not opposed to being affiliated with you. In fact, we would encourage it if you liked us that much. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo and you really do want to know the future, including how you die, so that you can live your life as if there's no tomorrow, because you know exactly when the tomorrow is. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. And finally, as a word to our community, it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it. That said, we're not going to stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. Let's be kind, everyone. Sounds good to me. And now it is time for us to do our 45-second recap. This week it's my turn. So, Phoenix, I don't want to eat any cherries. I hope you got a timer ready for me. I do, and I had a mild bit of panic thinking that it was my turn. I'm so glad it's not my turn. <laughs> well, that would mean I wasted a lot of time coming up with this recap now, wouldn't it? And you are ready? People can totally hear it when you nod on a podcast. Yep, that's famously visual medium. <laughs> I'm ready. Thank you. In three, two, one, go. Quoth's incessant pester earns Elodin's ire, for the master's no jester, so he tests the lad's desire. They travel to Haven to visit the residence, and while hearing them raven, Quoth learns why Elodin's their president. Thinking it best, Quoth leaps from the roof to pass the test, and his idiocy finds its proof. With his pride suitably chastened, Quoth retreats from naming, and to the fishery he hastens, looking for anything else for blaming. With Ambrose he stokes a broigus, though lacking a goal, their squabbles are outrageous and endanger Quoth's soul. Back at the Waystone, the gang breaks for the loo. Bast fears the silence alone, and the lack of romance, too. 37 seconds. I enjoyed that. <laughs> that was quite good. Excellent. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And no cherries for me. And no cherries for you. People are going to start getting bored with us for not actually failing on this. Yeah, Phoenix. Maybe someone needs to fail to eat some raspberries. Mm, no. All right. And with that, it's time for us to talk about our lens. So this week, we're going to talk a bit about recklessness. 
And this is a quality of Kvothe's that we're going to see time and again, where he acts without thinking and often with great foolishness. And it's definitely a real failing of his. And it's also something that it's worth thinking about in terms of virtue. Recklessness, as we're seeing here, is not the same as bravery or courage. Although Kvothe does seem to conflate the two. So I'm actually going to go back to Aristotle here because Aristotle has a very useful model for talking about the difference between courage and recklessness. The first thing we have to think about is how Aristotle defines virtues. Virtues are not the opposite of vices. They are rather the mean between two opposed vices. So in this case, courage is the mean between cowardice and recklessness or excessive foolhardiness. So what he's essentially saying is that you're going to feel fear and it's how you react to it that will define what's truly courageous or not. So there are some fears where it's perfectly sensible to say, I am not going to face this, now is not the time for it. So for instance, if there is an avalanche coming and you are by yourself, it's not cowardice to seek safety. That's just being sensible, you're expressing the right amount of fear and you're not letting it freeze you in place. At the same time, if you were to face that same avalanche and there were others present and you knew that by your own action, you could perhaps help save their lives and you fled for safety without any concern for them, that would be cowardice. Again, you're letting the fear control you as opposed to inform you. By that same token, recklessness would be seeing the avalanche coming down the mountain and deciding it's time to go skiing. <laughs> So in that case, recklessness would be without regard for consequences, without thinking about the cost of your actions. Because in this case, deciding to go skiing with the avalanche going down means that you will be endangering other people's lives because there are people who are going to have to come try and help you, the ski patrol namely. And they would have to endanger their own lives because of your recklessness. I actually think that there is a current real world example going on right now. It is reckless to want to go gather in a public space right now. It's April 2020 right now. We are all doing our best to contain a virus that has a very high rate of spread. Or at least a lot of us are. But there's a lot of people who are willing to take a reckless measure for their personal gain that will very likely result in something completely opposite of what they want. And in some way, I think that what you said speaks to the current time. It's relevant, I think, in pretty much all times. Right now, especially, we're seeing a case where the difference between courage and recklessness is readily available to the average person. And again, it's not reckless to want something. It's what you do with that want, right? Mm -hmm. I want to go out to a restaurant. I'm not going to. I want to go see a concert. I'm not going to go to the concert. Right. You had tickets for one and we have tickets for a show for Welcome to Night Vale that's supposed to be later on in the summer and we're not going to go, even if it's running. I've opted to 
purchase some of their merchandise instead because I do want to support them. I just had to find a different way. It's okay to experience the want or the desire to do something. It's how you respond to that that makes the difference between courage and recklessness. So Quoth's understanding of heroism and courage, in this case, seems to be derived primarily from stories. And his understanding of fear is derived almost entirely from his experiences in Tarbian. And he hasn't really put two and two together on these just yet. And so naturally, the storybook magic that he seems to crave, the Tabril and the Great, Master of All Names, seemingly limitless power, lacks the nuance that one would hope. Yeah, stories do tend to lack nuance, especially in things that are an oral tradition or fables or fairy tales. There's usually a black and white moral lesson, or there are heroes that don't seem to have flaws. And not only don't have flaws, they don't seem to have any concept of fear. When danger rears its head, they just kind of blithely run towards it. And they're just constantly coolly collected and they know exactly what they have in their inventory at all times. And they know that, oh, I have exactly what I need to deal with this. Which is all well and good, but isn't really what real people are like. So we start off, both clearly understands that there are offices and office hours <laughs> for the masters. Now, I wonder if that lesson got beat into him by his experiences with him or not, or if he just disrespects him that much. Anyway, I adore this section. Patrick Rothfuss has been on record saying that Elodin has a touch of the Fae. Duh. His one and only class, unlikely maths. The class is held now, and it's everywhere. This is fitting for Elodin in many ways, I think. Part of it is because Elodin is very much what you would consider a presentist. He believes that the world is constantly teaching us lessons if we have the wit about us to observe and learn from it. And that the world around us is probably the best teacher we can have. So all of that really fits. And meanwhile, the whole structure of it reminds me of something out of Terry Pratchett's Discworld, particularly the Unseen University of Ankh-Morpork. Seems like something that Ponder Stibbins would be teaching. To me, Elodin is kind of the polar opposite of Lauren. At one point in previous chapters, when Quoth was walking with Lauren, there was a description of him as stately or regal in his master's robes. Elodin, he jumped to snatch leaves from low-hanging branches, his master's robes billowing ridiculously. He does not care what people think of him. In fact, if he does care what people think of him, because even those of us who say, I don't care what people think of me, what they actually mean is I'm going to do things the way that I'm going to do things, regardless of how people view me. And sometimes ridiculousness is a thing that people do outwardly to 
make the other people around them amused. And in that case, they do care what people think of them. They care that people think they're funny or silly or ridiculous. And then there's also people who really care about making sure that you know that they don't care. Which means that they really do care. There was a point about 10 years ago where my standard form of dress was knee-high, loud as fork socks, rainbow-colored, argyle, little cats on them, something. And not quite pants, not quite shorts. They went down below my knee. They were kind of a dusty camo color and something bright and loud on top. And at the time, I wasn't coloring my hair funky colors, but probably had bright red hair that was somewhere in the sort of natural looking out of a box look. But I enjoyed getting stared at a little bit by the people who were like, what? Because I like having a little bit of whimsy. I love it when a little kid sees my hair for the record because podcast and you can't see it unless you go and watch some of our videos that are up on our YouTube channel. My hair right now needs to be redone, but it is green and blue and purple. I have had every color of the rainbow in my hair, sometimes at the same time. I enjoy the heck out of it. One of my favorite experiences was when my hair was mostly purple with a little bit of orange and yellow and red in the front. And a little kid was standing next to her mom and kind of tugged at her mom's jacket and then pointed at me and then hid behind her mom. And she then poked her head out and smiled and then hid. And it was adorable. It was super cute. And I like those reactions. I do care about what people think, and I like it when they smile, even if they think that I'm ridiculous. And so that brings us to Elodin. What do you think he thinks? Do you think he's doing this for his own amusement, or is it because he enjoys amusing others with his ridiculousness? Why does it have to be an either-or? I think that that's a fallacy. I think that you can have both. It's a both-and. <laughs> he comes up with things that he feels are ridiculous to make Kvothe do things because Kvothe is trying to be this earnest student who is trying so hard to appear older than he actually is, which I'm here to say appearing older than you actually are is bullshit. I do think there is something childlike about Elodin specifically in his ability to see things as they are outside of the frameworks that kind of get beaten into us as adults. That's part of his power, and that's part of what makes him unique. However, he tempers it with some hard-fought wisdom here, wisdom that we see that he has learned the hard way throughout this chapter. And this is what separates him, I think, from Quoth especially. The first test he gives Quoth is to go essentially on a snipe hunt. <laughs> go find these specific pine cones. A snipe hunt, of course, is oftentimes a form of hazing given to new initiates in a group where they are told to go looking for a snipe, which is a fictitious bird that bears a resemblance to a lot of real-life birds all mixed together. 
and then said kid, and it's usually a kid, is then sent off out into the boonies looking for this thing on a fruitless search, while the older folk are able to relax without being pestered by the newbie. Something that a grandparent might do to make sure that their grandkid is occupied while they have time with the adults. And it's here where Elodin shares his similarity with most IT folk and that his fondest desire is to be left alone. If you ever wonder why your IT person at your office is grumpy, well... It's because you're there. <laughs> they're not like that when you're not there, I swear. <laughs> so then we get a little bit of that classic storybook storytelling. Will you answer a few questions? You get three. And then... The whole, I'm smart enough not to squander my questions. I am going to bite my tongue until I have questions that I really want answered. And he cannot trick me. Huh. He gets a couple answers, but they just don't happen to be the answers that he wants. Accurate. Elodin never once said that he would answer them truthfully. <laughs> In fact, the first answer, he decides to try and throw both off with just a little old-fashioned racism. Yeah. Which leads me to a theory that maybe, maybe Kvothe doesn't know everything that he's talking about. When it comes to the Adimaru, he knows his own troop. But I do not think that he knows all troops. And I think that the Adimaru might have a reputation because people who consider themselves Adimaru, some of them, might just be complete jerks. Some of them might be rapists and rabble. They might legitimately think that they are a Dimaru or call themselves a Dimaru and not in a way that is trying to usurp the true Adimaru. They might consider themselves part of that family. There might also be actual Rue troops that are not good at performing. But Kvothe is an elitist within his own little circle of knowledge. And keep in mind, he's only 15 years old. And he was 12 when his parents died and his entire troop died. How many groups of Adimaru has he actually run into? And because they're a nomadic people, how many has he actually spent more than maybe a few weeks with? I also note that the criticism that he comes under is one that is oftentimes a valid one for people who are autodidacts, such as Quoth, namely, good at rote memorization and good at just coming up with a quick understanding of things, but seldom actually diving into a deeper observation. And that's something that Quoth oftentimes struggles with, as we shall see. As we have seen, he likes a surface level understanding of things. But the moment that you try to get him to do anything deeper, nope. He does not like to go back and re-examine things that he thinks he already knows. So pretty quickly, Kvothe realizes, or realizes, that Elodin is trying to bait him. Which makes me wonder if Elodin is trying to bait him. Or if Kvothe is just doing this whole, I have all of these skills and I am smarter than the average 30-year-old BS that he pulls every time that he feels insecure. And the next thing that Elodin says about why he doesn't want to teach Quoth is for the same reason I don't want a puppy. I've had puppies. 
We have a cat that was a kitten when we brought him home. I don't like raising baby animals. <laughs> I think there's actually some element of truth to this. Because in taking on a student, Elodin would be taking on responsibility for Kvothe's well-being and for what happens as a result of what he learns. It's not just taking on a responsibility for his education. It is expressly taking on Kvothe as a responsibility as a whole. Especially considering that Kvothe is a child at this point. No one at the university seems to know his parentage, nor do they seem to care that this child that they have let into the university does not seem to have guardians. We don't really get a whole lot of the concept in loco parentis at the school. However, we do get a sense that a teacher is responsible for what they teach to their pupils and how their pupils use that. The explanation of... Because you're too short, your eyes are too green, you have the wrong number of fingers, come back when you're taller, older, and you found a decent pair of eyes, can look at the world with more than the perspective that you currently have. And then also, you have the wrong number of fingers, kind of makes me think that maybe he's equating that with you haven't learned enough, you haven't had any of them bitten off or lost to stupidity. <laughs> I also took the bit about your eyes are too green. To call someone a green-eyed monster is oftentimes mm. to say that you are envious or greedy. And in many ways, that's how Quoth is when it comes to knowledge. He envies people who have more power than him, who know more than him, and he wants to have what they have. And when he lets that get the best of him, that's oftentimes what gets him in trouble. This is what leads him to mouth off against Hem and give him the hot foot. This is what leads him to go wandering through the archives with a candle. His desire for knowledge and power is not tempered by wisdom. I was thinking of green as in green or young or naive. I think that's also true. That's the beauty of literature. It can be many things. And I love how words and double entendre exist around Elodin. And Elodin seems to delight in that himself. Yes. So I do note, at one point, Elodin sits and stares at a fern. Elodin is perfectly content with this and he's probably not just staring at the fern. I get the impression that he has a rich inner life, a rich imagination. He can either meditate or zone out or just solve a problem in his head while staring off into the middle distance in which there happens to be a fern. And Kvothe, instead of taking that as a lesson to stop and figuratively smell the roses or the ferns, or stop and think and use his time wisely, is just waiting for Elodin to be finished. And I think also there is a hint there that Kvothe is not taking, which is to say that this fern is more interesting to Elodin than he is. <laughs> and maybe a better use of his time would be to go somewhere else. Like his class that he is currently skipping. Has skipped at this point. He's had time to go off on a pine cone hunt 
and then spend a half hour while Elodin contemplates a fern. <laughs> that class was... There's no getting into that class now. Nope. Arwell is going to be pissed. And then, without questioning what is happening, Kvothe follows Elodin, like a puppy, around the grounds of the university, and ultimately they wind up at the asylum, which is named Haven, but called both the Crockery and the Rookery. And it's worth noting that Elodin's relationship with the staff there is very interesting. It almost feels to me like Pablo Escobar's prison in Colombia that was also his palace. Okay. Like, you get the sense that he feels at home there and can come and go as he pleases, and even though it's ostensibly meant to house him and hold him in, he can leave anytime he wants, and the staff there listen to his words as if they are commands. Some of the staff feel frightened or threatened by him. And it's understandable. Elodin can be unpredictable. And he is also, as we shall see here, quite powerful. And let's be real, that's a frightening combination. Yes. Quoth cannot resist the temptation to express how wonderful and great he is at everything. And even states... My well-trained thieves' eye told me that you could not climb this fence. No, what he means is he could not climb this fence. And if Kvothe can't climb it, obviously it's not worth climbing. Or not able to be climbed by anyone. I find it interesting that there are at least 320 patients in Haven, presumably of all ages. And there is a theory that Ari used to live in Haven or that she belongs in Haven. I have a bit of a theory because I'm wondering about how extensive the under thing under Emre and the university is. It seems like a whole set of streets and open areas underneath the streets and open areas that exist now. Kind of like the underground in Seattle whole infrastructure and I believe that it goes to some buildings that have basements. She finds herself in a place that has compartmentalized rooms, some of which have been caved in, and I wonder if she finds herself in the basement or in the lower levels of the rookery. I mean, we're in a city that ostensibly seems to have indoor plumbing, so it would stand to reason that there is a sewage system that connects it to the wider community, and it's entirely possible that there is a way for her to get there. Um, I think really what we're seeing here is the consequence of power. There's a price for thinking the way that Arcanists are taught to think. If we think back to the games that Abanthi had Quoth playing, Think about how he talks about it, breaking my mind into multiple pieces. You figure that you do that enough times, sooner or later you won't be able to put all the pieces back together. And each time your mind gets broken, there's a fracture. And Quoth talks about this blithely as just a matter-of-fact thing, but when he's talking about 
playing hide-and-seek with himself for hours on end with a part of his mind running around. Assuming they don't come back together, that could very easily turn into a case much like what the other patients are actually experiencing right now in the asylum. From what Jeremy, the guard at Haven, says, at least 500 people could live in this asylum at any given point. That's a full third of the amount of students that go to the university to learn God knows what. And Quoth has just barely scratched the surface of it. Going on, Quoth cleverly makes inquiries in the form of comments and Elodin ignores him because Elodin is not going to just be fooled by Quoth saying, I would like to know this. <laughs> That's nice, kid. <laughs> then he starts asking Quoth questions, and Quoth's answers are pretty revealing about how little he actually understands. Eldon asks him, why do you think we have an asylum that can house a full third of our student population? And Quoth immediately figures, well, it's probably because other people who aren't like me aren't as tough as I am. No. Eldon has no patience for that. And then he says, what do you think about how we teach the things that we're teaching people? And Quoth immediately thinks, what, you mean grammar? No. <laughs> well, he also asks Quoth why he doesn't hitch his star to Kilvin's wagon. Kilvin likes him. Eldon's not stupid. Kilvin teaches dangerous things that can shoot your eye out, kid. But they're safer ostensibly, than teaching how to call on the elements or how to break your mind into bits. As though it would be better if he did lose a finger than if he did lose his mind. Which, probably, yeah. We see here Elodin taking Quoth to meet Elodin's old giller, who has had a break. Alder Wynn. Elodin is very protective of him. Even now, he tells the staff not to confine Win. Win, wind. Just gonna say that. And he also tells Quoth not to speak loudly and not to disturb the person he's about to meet. Win has panic behind his eyes. He's frightened of the room he's in. He does not seem frightened of Elodin, but I do wonder if whatever happened to Alder Wynn is that fabled when it happened that Simon mentioned in our last episode. So Wynn seems to have misophonia, which is a literal hatred of noise. This whole building has been silenced by padding, by magical means, maybe? I think there's some artificing involved. Very likely. And I think that there is merit to that. Loud noises, high-pitched noises, unpredictable noises like dog barking, or a leaf blower, or a lawnmower, whatever the heck has just made noise outside of our window. Anyway, they cause him so much distress, it just adds to whatever else is going on in his head. Elodin speaks softly and gently, trying to communicate with this person without distressing them further. 
One thing that Wynne does say while looking very agitated, don't bring thunder. If you go back to page 57 in my copy of the book, Quoth talks about how the Adem have named him Madre. One of the things that Madre means is the thunder, specifically the flame, the thunder, the broken tree. Wynne is very definitely a namer. I think we see a lot of namers that are not called out as such throughout this book and throughout the wise man's fear, if we only choose to look. In much the same way that Kvothe has that innate ability to name things and people like Kethsalen, one sock, or Ari. We don't know Ari's real name, but we know Ari's name as chosen by Kvothe. And even in The Slow Regard of Silent Things, Ari chooses to think of herself as Ari. I think Ari herself is a namer. I agree. More on that later when we actually meet her. It makes me wonder what Cat Whistle and Blue Down and Bones are in reference to. Kind of the way that Ari names the places that she goes and the things that she has differently than what we as a society would call them. I think that it's possible that Cat Whistle and Blue Down and Bones are actual things, and it's possible that Elodin knows what Wynne means by these, because he says, I'll bring them. He definitely feels a sense of responsibility towards Wynne, and not only that, there's an element of affection there too. He seems to care about Wynne's well-being and treats him with respect in a way that I think oftentimes we don't when we think about those who are confined from society. We've had friends that have either voluntarily or involuntarily been confined to a mental hospital. And for one of them, I had the opportunity to go visit. We were both going to go. I have generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD. At the time I was in therapy, I've gotten to a point where I've learned a lot of tools from that. I also feel like I'm in a place where I don't need the counseling. We had tapered off, we'd had a plan, there's all that. But at the time I was full on in pretty stressed out mode and things triggered easily. And there was a fear in my head that Maybe if I set foot into a psych ward that I wouldn't be setting foot out of one. And we see that a little bit with Ari, who is capable of taking care of herself, if in an unconventional way. She wouldn't be thriving in a place that is meant to help people who are not capable of taking care of themselves. Again, though, we digress. <laughs> I noticed that... Elodin makes sure that Wynne's agency is respected, that he can leave if he feels like he needs to or wants to. Maybe not leave the entire building, but leave the confines of the room at least. He wants to make sure it's not a prison. We get more about what the university really is from this. Elodin states specifically, you do not know anything about the university. Seven words. Elodin is full of seven word sentences. <laughs> he says, Quoth thinks of this as a fairyland. 
a playground and it's not. So interesting that this is coming from a person who treats the woods like a fairyland or a playground. This whimsical creature stating this terrible truth about the place that Quoth finds himself. He does not believe that a 15-year-old has gained enough wisdom to enter a dangerous situation that they have not spent enough time thinking about. He wants Quoth to prove that he's thought this through, to prove himself to Elodin. In a not-so-strictly-detrimental way, there is something that I would require myself to do and would highly suggest anyone that cares about my opinion to do. If you want a permanent body modification, like a tattoo, if you want it now, you will want it in a year. Think about it for a year. Quoth retorts to the fairyland crack that it's a playground and all the other children are jealous because I got to play get whipped bloody and banned from the archives and they didn't. And there's something interesting about that language there. Specifically, these are things that Quoth feels like have been done to him as opposed to consequences of his choices. Foth is not taking any responsibility for what he has done, the choices he's made, or the consequences he's incurred. And I think that right there is yet another major red flag. Yet another reason why he should not be doing things that are this dangerous or reckless. In this line of questioning, Quoth's thoughts are always to, what is the answer that Eladin wants to hear? He's not thinking, what's the actual right answer so that I can actually understand these things? He's not thinking, what is the true answer in terms of my experience or myself? He's only concerned with trying to please Eladin so he can get what he wants and hurry up and get to building a lightsaber. What I will say is that Quoth, feeling this incessant need to predict an unpredictable person, to get what he wants, it's actually a form of manipulation. It's something that when you do it because you're trying to avoid punishment or you're trying to avoid a negative outcome, can be a protective mechanism. Quoth feels like everything in his life has been done to him and everything that has been done to him is a wrong. And so he's trying to find that combination for the lock that is barring his access to the things he wants. And he finally has run up against someone who is just as clever as Quoth fancies himself. So finally, Elodin has realized that, man, nothing is getting through to this kid. So he shows him his old room. One thing about the room, they walk in and Quoth feels something. Now, in a hospital, sometimes they have negative pressure rooms and positive pressure rooms that are meant to keep either germs from getting out or pathogens from getting in. Negative pressure rooms keep things in. Positive pressure rooms keep things out. I think because of this that whoever is in charge of the rookery is trying to keep the wind out. There's a constant pressure, like the pressure that you'd feel in an airplane. It keeps things still. 
And given that we know that Elodin is a master namer who knows the names of all things, if he had access to the wind, he could probably find a way out of there. I mean, granted, he still finds a way out of there. There's a couple of mysteries. A door completely composed of copper. There's copper around the window. There are veins of something red going through the window. The still air. The fact that even now, Elodin fears being locked inside this room forever. Even though we later get the impression that he didn't escape through the door. And Elodin tells the story of Taberlin, subbing his own name. Yeah, it calls back to Cobb's story at the beginning of the book, where we have his key coin and candle are missing. He doesn't have tools to get himself out, and even the name of the wind was hidden by the clever machinations of his captors. Now, one thing that's interesting to me here is that it seems like Copper cannot be named. Or at least Elodin cannot name Copper. Aren't there Copper plates on the four-plate door? Good point. Just going to leave that one out there. Now, this is our 22nd episode. I apologize to everyone if I don't remember details of something that you maybe listened to really recently, but we recorded episode one a while ago, and I do not remember everything that I have said in the previous episodes, regardless of the fact that I have edited every single episode at least once. But... Elodin goes on to kind of pantomime the story of Taberlin, and he says to the stone, break, and the stone, wait, it didn't happen. What? It's interesting that the word break is there, but later on we get care baseline. There is a theory I've heard, and that I think I've talked about, where if you can understand the word, that's something that you can name. Or that if you can understand it, you can learn the name. But if it's something in a foreign language or incomprehensible gibberish, that's something that you don't know. I think the material is different. And so while the initial thing that Elodin broke, Kvothe may be able to name, whatever is there now is different, and he can't understand Care Baselin. It's like in World of Warcraft when you hear the chat from people of the opposing faction. It's all scrambled. Or if you read it. Yeah. But Elodin even says they changed it. And then he feels around tries to figure out what it is. And instead of Quoth caring about what is being done in front of him, without him being able to see what is right in front of his stupid face... He thinks back to Will and Sim and how they called Elodin nuts. Kvothe can't see the forest for the trees. He's caught up in this idea of tantalizing power, and he's being shown the cost of this power, of what all of it actually entails. He doesn't sit here thinking about, hmm, how did this person get to be this way? He thinks of it as completely separate from the power. And what Elodin is trying to show him is that the instability that sets him apart from other people is not separated from the things that he does and the way he thinks. That there is a cost to it, that there is a risk. And he underscores this 
He finally uses his magic powers to break the wall after ascertaining its actual true name, not just the one he initially thought. And not even break it, but turn it into molecules of itself and sand, and it just whoosh onto his legs. So Quoth can't hold his tongue any longer, and he says, What do I have to do to be your student? And Elodin says, Jump off the roof. And the real test here is not, I'm going to just blindly jump. Leap of faith. Nope. The real answer to pass this test would be to say, no, thank you. I'll use the door, thanks. <laughs> no, instead, he jumps down 20 feet and lands on his back, cracks a few ribs, miraculously mostly comes away not too much worse for wear, given that it's entirely possible this could have been a fatal injury or one that permanently paralyzed him for life. Without thinking, Quoth just says, I know what this person wants. He wants me to jump off the roof, so I'm going to just blindly do it. I trust him to take care of me. And this is exactly why he soon finds himself taking up the noble art of artificing. I literally laughed out loud when I got to that part. <laughs> I think in some ways this lesson is, I'm not going to take care of you if you do something stupid, kid. A couple little things real quickly, because I like going over some of the stuff that is theory heavy. I wonder what the mesh was that was inside the stone. I wonder what the red veins that are inside the glass are. I wonder if Elodin can even actually touch the window or the windowsill, because it seems like Elodin, being locked in there for a couple of years, would have tried to pry the molding away from the window. Non-obvious answer. So I wonder if he can even touch it. I wonder if the thing that breaks the chair when he chucks it at the window is some form of barrier. We know that there are cunning artificers at the university, so it's entirely possible. I do like that at the end, Eldon made it very clear that anyone that was dumb enough to jump off of a roof was never going to be his student. And I think this comes back to Kvothe and his inability to inquire about anything in his vicinity. He doesn't question things. He doesn't question people, even if he doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust Ambrose, and he doesn't question when Ambrose tells him to take a candle into the fucking archives. He doesn't spend too much time interrogating meanings. So I think of Elodin as someone who is always telling a truth, though maybe not the truth you think you're hearing. And I think this is also true of a lot of the characters in this book. And Quoth doesn't understand the truth they're telling him. He also is such a narcissist that he says, storybook magic or no, I was not eager to study under a man whose first set of lessons had left me with three broken ribs, a mild concussion, and a dislocated shoulder. And he didn't learn the lesson. <laughs> no, even still, he is blaming Elodin for his own idiocy. His own recklessness. And in the next chapter, we get an example of this same recklessness in a more social setting, particularly as it relates to his feud with Ambrose. Now, I kind of think of those two as Tom and Jerry. Ambrose is Tom, and Quoth is Jerry. 
And the thing people often forget about Tom and Jerry is it's really bastard versus asshole. Nobody's a good guy. And while Ambrose may be malevolent and petty and able to carry a grudge and all of these terrible things, Kvothe seems to go out of his way to antagonize and heighten this. He's found a new pike. Except he even seems to enjoy picking on Ambrose even more. And here we see Kvothe again commenting on his clever rue tongue, but being remarkably light on specifics. He says that he doesn't want to bore us with specifics, which kind of sounds a little like Patrick Rothfuss having gotten editor's notes about being too specific in a book that is 722 pages long, saying, fine, you don't want specifics, I'll just montage over this. Again, this is a central relationship within the book, and all we get is a montage, but we're still going to get the contents of his pockets. Because <laughs> that's important. But yes, Throughout all of this, Kvothe is continually poking the bear, so to speak. But he thinks he's a porcupine. And eventually, the bear wins. Roll the porcupine over. Get its soft spot. And adult Kvothe has the wherewithal to say, And I was a fool. We all know this. I'm glad that the book doesn't shy away from calling Kvothe out for being an idiot sometimes. Yeah, Kvothe strikes me as someone who could win every battle and still lose a war. Also to wrap our lens around this very short chapter a little bit better, Kvothe starts rumors about himself. Rumors that could get people looking into his past, because some of those rumors are true. Rumors that could get people to believe that he is stronger or more resilient than he actually is, and could ultimately get him killed. Think Houdini. He had this reputation that he had set up that he could be punched in the stomach and not feel a thing. Except he could only do that if he was prepared. And he was killed by a sucker punch because of his reckless behavior. I wonder if Kvothe is being set up to be killed by a sucker punch from his reckless behavior. It wouldn't surprise me. He's trying to use his reputation as a sort of armor, and it gives him a false sense of security. And once again, we get an interlude. This is the second interlude in two episodes that we've had, when we really haven't seen our framing device show up in a while. One of the things that actually got me thinking about recklessness as our lens was the little description at the end of the previous chapter where Kvothe talks about the difference between courage and fearlessness, and then the description that we get of Bast. Bast is someone who doesn't really think about negative consequences unless they've actually happened to him. Go figure. Neither is Kvothe. <laughs> they do kind of mirror one another. He talks a little bit about his discomfort around heights being related to having fallen out of a tree 10 years ago. And then also his fear of the overwhelming silence that overtakes Kvothe in particularly solemn moments. Do you think that this is fear for Kvothe's safety or do you think that this is fear for external reasons? I think it's a little of both. I think he sees 
what the silence seems to do to Kvothe's mental state when he's dwelling too long on his follies and not enough on these heroic stories. These heroic stories, which are the only thing that Bast wants him to remember. And not the reckoning that came as a price for these. At this point, everybody takes a quick bathroom break. That's how I read that anyway. Yeah, it sounds like it to me too. So after the bathroom break and a brief spot of lunch. Is it lunch or is it snacks or is it dinner? Because seriously, how long have they been talking? I mean, let's be real here. The audiobook for this book is like 24 hours long. Maybe 28. I don't remember. But the audiobook for the next book, day two, is 48 hours long. What is time? <laughs> it's a flat circle, as we have established, because time no longer exists. It is a societal construct that no longer functions in our current reality. Thanks, quarantine. <laughs> anyway. Once the silence has been broken, Quoth states that he's not sure how to approach the next bits of story, which I think is almost like the author telling us, I don't know how to continue my story right now. I know what happens, but I don't know how to segue. And Bast, no longer as an audience surrogate, but as an editor surrogate, provides a lot of helpful suggestions. And then I think Foth is Pat's surrogate right here because he says, I'm sorry, Bast. It's good advice, as all of your seemingly inane advice turns out to be. I like to imagine that this is taken from an actual email exchange between Patrick Rothfuss and his editor. Exactly. <laughs> but then he turns to Bast and says, think now, what does our story need? And Bast answers, women, <laughs> which is a little bit of meta commentary here on the story as it has progressed so far. We have been missing women as anything other than set dressing, really. I agree with you. Pretty much all speaking characters or all characters that we have seen from more than a couple of chapters, or even more than a chapter other than Quoth's mother, all of them are either men or being defined by their relationship with men. And then we get into that, no, 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 not women, because... I just don't think that Kvothe makes friends with women. I don't think Kvothe makes friends, period. Maybe Kvothe doesn't interact with them very much. Like, at all. Except for the one woman who we're led to believe is Dinah. And here we see just how toxic that notion of the one can be. Because it turns a woman who is a person into an object. It takes away their agency. Exactly. I will tell you the truth of her. I don't know about that. If this is Denna, Kvothe's version of the truth of her implies that Kvothe actually knows her, that he's learned anything about her. He is supremely uninterested in anything about her other than the immediate what's happening now. He's not interested really in anyone outside of how they impact his life. And he doesn't think of them as people in a future sense, and he doesn't think of them as people with a past. He only thinks about people insofar as they are in his field of view. And this is true of all of his relationships. 
Quoth says, you have never seen her, never heard her voice. You cannot know. So Bass has never met her, except he states that he's seen Denna and that Denna is not as beautiful as Quoth maybe paints her. So maybe that's evidence that this is not about Denna, or maybe it's a misstep in the writing. I think it's also possible that the woman that Quoth alludes to is not someone that actually exists because his version of Denna is the woman, but that version is not real. Yeah, sure, I have a girlfriend. She lives in Canada. You don't know her. She goes to a different school. <laughs> I think that Denna exists or existed. I think that there's some parallels here that can be seen between Quoth and Denna's story and Lanray and Lyra's. They both struggled with the concept of possessing another person. And they also struggle with power. So with all of that, we've had a lot to grapple with. Maybe a Phronimos of the week might help us to make sense of some of this. It's your turn this week, Phoenix. Who you got? There are not very many characters in these couple of chapters. If we break it down, we have Quoth, and it's never Quoth. We've got Elodin. We've got the two people that are working at Haven. We've got two patients at Haven. And we have Tell of Ambrose, but... And then Chronicler and Bast. And Chronicler even doesn't really show up that much. So I'm left to choose Elodin. Even though I don't think that he is necessarily showing wisdom because he doesn't really seem to be able to handle Quoth as he is, although he is doing his best to teach him in a different manner than others would. He's trying to show and not tell, but I think that he's right in that Quoth doesn't have eyes that can see what he's trying to teach. I think in many ways he's testing Quoth's patience and reactions rather than the things that Quoth thinks he's teaching. But I also think that he misguesses just how blind Quoth is and how unwilling Quoth is to interrogate his situation. That look of astonishment on Elodin's face as Quoth leaps off the roof tells us that he didn't think anyone could be that dumb. I don't know what was going on in Elodin's mind. Because there's a lot of assumptions that Quoth makes about Elodin that I think are completely wrong. Anytime Quoth ascribes a motivation to Elodin or to him or to pretty much anyone, I think he's wrong. So while I believe that the actions happened, that Elodin did take him to Haven and did take him to his old room, and did show him a lot of these things. The motivations, the descriptions of what was going on in his head, I think are just wrong. Yeah, I don't think it was the test that Quoth seems to think it was. Nope, I don't either. I think that Elodin was more trying to show Quoth why he shouldn't be pursuing something. And Quoth saw it as Elodin requiring certain things before he would choose to teach Quoth. Quoth thinks it's a test where there's right and wrong answers 
And if it's a test, the only way to pass the test is not to take it. I don't even think it was a test. No, I don't think so either. This was, this is why I will not teach you. There was no right answer that would get Quoth what he wanted. And this is something that we'll see time and again. Quoth's desire for something getting in the way of his actually obtaining it. Also, Quoth blindly following people he thinks he will curry favor with. He blindly follows Elodin to Hem's room and watches as Elodin sets fire to Hem's stuff and does not interrogate why Elodin would do this. It doesn't even occur to him, is this your room? Until everything's on fire. What the hell? Anyway, back to Fernemo's territory. I think the things that we can learn from Elodin in this are his compassion for the other residents of Haven, his determination that he will not teach dangerous things to a person who is so clearly too reckless to handle them. So why you don't teach a three-year-old how to cook in anything other than maybe a microwave. The Easy Bake Oven. Maybe, <laughs> but Easy Bake Ovens can still burn you. There are reasons that there are child safety locks, and Elodin is trying to explain to Quoth that there is a child safety lock on this knowledge, at least when it comes to Elodin teaching it. And I think this is the reason why his class doesn't seem to exist. I think his class exists. I think that if you look, unlikely maths exists everywhere. And if you look now, you'll see it. That's why I said it doesn't seem to exist. Oh, like as in D&D. &D. You yeah. don't seem <laughs> to be in any danger. Correct. Which should sow fear into every player's heart. All right. Well, now let's go ahead and continue our talk of Elodin, in a manner of speaking, with an interesting fact that might make him proud. So today we're going to be talking about the observational powers of birds. Okay. Scientists have already shown that crows and jays, for instance, can recognize faces and track those who have done them wrong. However, a new study seems to show that shorebirds also display higher level pattern recognition skills. Researchers with the Hainan Normal University in Haiku, China, noticed that on the tidal flats in the Guangxi Zhuang Autonomous Region in southwestern China, several types of shorebirds responded differently to humans wearing casual garb than they did to humans in the common fishing attire of the area. Real quick, we apologize for any mispronunciation that Will might be doing. I'm trying my best. <laughs> To test the hypothesis, they measured how close humans could get to the birds before they took off, the flight initiation distance, or FID as we'll refer to it going forward. Across all the species they observed, the average FID was much shorter when the human was clad in fishing attire compared to casual attire. The researchers measured responses among the following species, marsh sandpipers, common greenshanks, Kentish plovers, dunlins, little egrets, spotted redshanks, common redshanks, and black-headed gulls. The researchers hypothesized that over the generations, the birds have learned that humans dressed in fishing attire are focused solely on their own activities and are therefore less dangerous. 
while humans in different attire have not earned that lax threat assessment. Because it costs birds time, energy, and potentially a scarce meal to flee from an approaching human, the ability to distinguish between those who could pose a threat and those who are uninterested is an advantageous behavior that leads to fuller bellies and better survival outcomes. So, are you interested? You and I both know that crows are mean little buggers, and if you accidentally run one over with your car, they will follow your car and take out their anger on the rubber gaskets and the windshield wipers and things. So it stands to reason that they're not the only birds that are intelligent enough to recognize threats based on visuals. The fact that these seabirds are so used to people in a specific uniform or garb that they would feel comfortable still going and trying to find their food, that's a pretty interesting fact that I think Elodin would find entertaining at least. All right, so now that that's over with, it is time for seven words. This time it's my turn to go from the book. And I've already said them, but I think they bear repeating. Despite the fact that the section with Elodin is full of seven word sentences, like trigonometry and diagram logic don't do this, or Elodin grinned, knowing he'd almost caught me, or why don't you want to teach me? There are a lot. There are so many. Elodin knew the name of the wind. None of those are my seven words. My seven words this week are, think now, what does our story need? <laughs> because seriously, the major critique of these books is the lack of women with agency. And now it is your turn. So mine are... You know I'm tickled you chose that. Okay. <laughs> was this something that I said? Was this something that you're thinking right now? I think it's both. Originally it was, I know you're tickled I chose that. But really, it's the other way around. <laughs> you know I'm tickled you chose that. I do. I do know that you're tickled about that. I really appreciate the fact that you and I are on very similar wavelengths when it comes to this. I don't think that the book, I don't think that the book is bad because of this. I don't think that superhero movies are bad because they have very little in the way of female representation and they routinely fail the Bechdel test all the time, all the damn time. They know it's a thing. They have to know it's a thing. People have to know this is a thing. But if you only have two or three female characters that have speaking lines, you can have them talk to one another. I swear, it's okay. You can totally do that. And not about a guy. And not about how their relationship to each other is defined by a man. I want more female representation in my stories. I want more queer representation in my stories. For those of you who don't like that word, I want more LGBTQIA representation in my stories and not lip service. I want actual legitimate with agency characters who fall into categories that are not cis white male. I still love these books. We wouldn't have been making a podcast for the last six months on this if we didn't both love it. But that being said, 
it can always be better. As we say at the top, it's perfectly fine to critique the text. And it's something that we encourage for people to examine and interrogate the things that you love. It's only going to make you love it more deeply. Or sorry, anything that anyone makes is made by humans, which means it's going to have flaws, it's going to have problems, it's going to have blind spots. And that's just a natural part of things. Everyone has biases. Everyone. I do. When I write, I challenge you to find a cis white male in my stories. And what I'll say is that it is okay to acknowledge that you're not perfect and that the stories that you like are not perfect. They'll never be perfect, but they can always be better. But they can also be good without being perfect because perfect is the enemy of good. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 49 and 50 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of the cycle of debt. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. All that being said, we really just appreciate you guys being around, and another way that you can show us your support and your love is to just rate us on the podcast app of your choice or on Podchaser. Interaction is always appreciated. We want to know how we can do better. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. People can totally hear that on the podcast. <laughs> the podcasts. No. People can hear it when you nod on the podcast. <laughs> People can totally hear it when you nod. <laughs> People can totally hear it when you nod on a podcast. Yep. It's famously visual medium. <clears throat> I'm ready. Thank you. <laughs>